You know how I've been talking about um, the last few weeks, how I've really stressed that you are to be part of a local church, that you are, uh, that when you uh, are saved, that what God does is he has this miraculous thing that he calls the body of Christ, and he has put us into the body of Christ. So you are never, ever meant to live out your faith uh, apart from community. And, you know, I won't go into detail, but I've shared with you just uh, how sometimes your generation, just in this rejection of, uh, of religion, kind of walks away from local church and, and, uh, and kind of sticks their nose up at it a little bit because there are things that are unhealthy. And I get that. There are unhealthy things in the local church. But God has called you to be part of the healing uh, of, of the local church. And to do that, you have to be invested. How strange would it be for an ER nurse uh, to just look at the wound and go, man, that's rough. I hope you get better, right? No, you know what, you know what they do. I mean, it's, it's gloves on and hands in, right? And so uh, it's, the same, it's the same idea. Uh, the, the local church in Nacogdoches desperately needs your generation to love the church uh, into uh, health and into its destiny. We are called as a local body to really change things in this city, and you're part of it. With all that said, and I'll, I will continue to stress that, some of you go, well, I don't need to be part of this local church. I'm only going to be here for two years. I'm only going to be here for four years. I'm only going to be here for six years, whatever. I'm only going to be here for this uh, brief amount of time. Uh, and you go, I don't really need to, I don't need to join the church. I don't need to be a part of the church. Can I just tell you that I really believe that that is wrong? Uh, that God has put you here for a purpose. And even if it's just for six months, God is not, he didn't do it on accident, Right? God assigned you to this city and this campus, that your workplace, wherever you're at. God put you there. And so one of the things I want to encourage you to do is even, even if you only have six months left, even if you only have a year left uh, being here, I want you, and this is the church that you are, are attending, I want you to join this church. I want you to sign your name on the dotted line because uh, what, what that does is that says I'm buying in. I'm a part of what God is doing here. And, and it's, not, it's not legalistic. It's necessary for us to rise up and go, yes, I am going to be part of the local church and I'm going to be part of what God's called the local church to do in this city. And so I want to encourage you to do that. If, if you really feel like this is where God has planted you for this season of your life, I want to encourage you to do that. And all you have to do uh, oh, you yeah, sound like a salesman. All you have to do for just nineteen ninety nine, uh, it's it's really simple uh, to join the church. We don't a lot of churches. You just kind of go up to the front at the end of a of a service. Um, we we don't really like that because uh, it's disconnected a little bit. So what we want you to do is come to what's called vision class, where we get to sit down in a smaller context and just share with you our heart. What's God put on our heart for this city, uh, for this church, uh, and how how we are going about that. So. Uh, we have those once a month. Uh, every month we have vision class. We, we feed you. Don't come for the food, but it's good. Um, we feed you uh, lunch, and it's right after church. We have one today. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. If you're interested at all in being part of this, I want you to, I want you to do that. So that's today at 1215. And I'll keep telling you. We have those once a month, and I'll keep telling you when they are. But that's why I announce those. It's not just because I want to get you into vision class, but uh, that's the process which you join this church, and it is so important. Uh, that you hear from me how important I believe it is that you do join uh, a church. You guys okay? Do you get that? you receive that? Cool. All right. Just the, the SFA football faithful are just going to be the nodders today, like 10 of you. That's all right. Okay. So that's announcements. We are done 
with that. You guys, uh, you guys enjoying this, uh, this series at all? I know it's maybe a bit strange, but going through the scarlet thread, just doing Old Testament stuff, you guys enjoying it, learning a little bit? Well, I sure am. This study is, uh, is a ton of fun. I thought going through the details of covenant last week uh, was, was really cool. Um, we, we looked at the nine steps uh, to making a covenant, and we talked about how uh, in, in every culture, uh, really since the beginning of time, there has been a form of covenant, a form of making a pact, and the most serious is always involved, uh, in, involved blood. And I want to, um, and so anyway, so we went through the nine steps. I want to let you know that if you ever have any questions, a, a lot of people have questions when, when I'm going through stuff. Uh, we're not going to probably have a time where you raise your hand and ask questions, but if you have any questions at all, you feel free to email or uh, tweet your question or put it on our Facebook page or text me or Sarah or call us, whatever, uh, and let us know the questions. Because I promise you, if you have a question, you know, your teacher always said it, if you have a question, somebody else has the same question, right? And we've actually had that a little bit this week. Uh, and so I want to start by answering some, uh, some questions from, uh, from last week. But before I do, I just want to tell you, uh, anybody know, here's a quiz. Anybody know where I graduated from college? Good, you know, it's good. I, I went to Texas Tech. Did anybody see what happened on Thursday night? No? Okay. Well, Tech won, and so I'm just in the uh, extra, extra good mood. The, the Lumberjacks won, and, uh, and Tech beat TCU. So you guys will always gain bonus points if you know Tech stats and uh, if you know they won and you just come up and say, hey, wreck them, how about those Red Raiders? You know, I'll, it'll be exciting. Okay, nobody cares. <laughs> All right. All right, so I want to start with a question, but I want to prepare you for the beginning uh, of this question, and I want you to, uh, to be prepared. I feel like uh, this, is a, this is a topic that you, we don't discuss often enough, and we certainly don't discuss it often enough within the confines of, uh, of, of the church. It's kind of a taboo subject. We stay away from it a little bit. Uh, it's a subject where we like to talk about lots of, of rules and regulations, but there's not a lot of meat behind uh, the rules that we give. So um, last week, I said that when I was talking about blood covenant, last week I mentioned that marriage is, is one of those covenants. You remember me saying that? And I, I just said it very, very briefly. I didn't, I didn't uh, go through a lot of detail. Uh, last uh, fall, uh, we had a uh, we had marriage weekend, and we went through a lot of this stuff. But we didn't we didn't talk a lot about uh, about this subject in covenant. And so the question has kind of come up. Well, can you can you explain that a little bit? I mean, when you you just you can't just say marriage is covenant and not have uh, a little backing to it. And so this has come up, and I wanted to share something with you. Uh, now that we've gone through the nine steps of covenant, now every one of you can recite those, right? If I asked two of you to get up and make blood covenant, you could do it, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you could. And so uh, we wanted, I wanted to just answer one of the questions uh, about, about marriage. You know, marriage is uh, extremely, uh, extremely important to God's heart, and, and he expresses that over and over and over and over and over in the scriptures. One of the reasons being, and, and there's lots of reasons, but one of the, the main reasons is that marriage is designed to display the glory of God, right? 
When, when uh, man and woman become one flesh, the design is that in him and in her, now in them is Christ, and out of that marriage comes the glory of God. So it's why he's so, uh, he's so adamant about protecting uh, the sanctity of marriage is because it is the, it is the uh, display of his image and his glory on the earth. So marriage is a huge, huge topic to him. But one of the things that gets added in here all the time, and you guys are going through it uh, a, a bunch, um, I, I don't know that, well, I won't, I won't say that. I believe that our culture today uh, is probably one of the more hypersexual cultures of all time. Uh, I, I think that there could be some arguments made. Uh, you, you know, you go, you go back to uh, right before Rome collapsed. You go back uh, it, right before Babylon uh, collapsed. And there were certainly some things going on uh, that, were, that were awful. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you how uh, inundated, well, you know, how inundated you are with sexuality on a moment-by-moment-by-moment-by-moment basis. And... One of the reasons that we, when, we, when we talk about covenant and we, we begin to talk about uh, sexuality in those terms, one of the reasons it's so important to talk about is this huge question now that's being, uh, that it's not taken near as seriously even as it was uh, 10, 15 years ago, is really this question of why is premarital sex not okay? If, if sex is going to occur, sorry, I know we got, it's like Sunday school, we got in it, but... Uh, if sex is going to occur in marriage, is that not something that I'm going to want to know about that person before I get into marriage? Right? You may have, you may have heard some of these arguments. This is something I need to know about them before we get into, we get into marriage. Because if, look, if they're not any good, I don't want to marry them, right? It's a joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whoo, it's the wrong crowd. <laughs> All right. You guys okay? I'm just, we're tackling a tough subject. I wanted to see if you're all right. And y'all are all just like, <laughs> what's he saying? Here's the deal. I don't want to teach this at length, okay? Really, really plain and simple. And I want to be, be very uh, medically accurate here. But God protects, uh, God protects this act within marriage because the design is that when two people... Uh, are married, and you look back in cultures all the way back in the history of the world, the consummation of marriage has always happened with sex. That's been, that's been the moment where that marriage is finalized, and why is it so? Because uh, physically, what occurs is a blood covenant. And I'm not, I'm not going to go into tons of detail here, but when a marriage is consummated, the hymen is broken, and a blood covenant is bound. And what a blood covenant is, look, we studied it last week. What a blood covenant is, is a forever thing of you giving yourself to that, uh, that covenant partner. And so God is so serious about it because he said that the marriage is going to be bound in a covenant that is not able to be break, broken. He says in the scriptures, what God puts together, let no man pull asunder. And so when he brings two people together and that covenant is made in that sexual relationship, it is a blood covenant and it is a covenant that is lasting forever. And so it is so important that you are aware that we're not just, the church isn't just standing up here saying, you guys just quit being rambunctious and having all this premarital sex. You guys behave better. 
right? I know that's what we sound like a lot of times, that we just, we're trying to put shackles on you and the rules, but here's the deal. There's urgency behind this because you are, you are giving yourself in covenant to whoever that person is. And it never breaks. And it never goes away. And so there's urgency behind you understanding the seriousness of that marriage covenant. And I, I'll teach that maybe at some point in, in depth. I feel like you've got, you've got the heart of it. But that was a, that was a question, and it was a great question. Uh, but that's why in the scriptures over and over again, God is so adamant about, uh, about virginity being protected into marriage because that is the point where covenant between two people uh, is made. You guys okay? You understand? So, uh, and, and Jesus, you, you see Jesus, uh, you know, repeat this in the, in the law, when the law is given to Moses in, in, uh, in Exodus, it says you will not commit adultery. So it's not just premarital sex, it's extramarital sex. And uh, he says, you will not commit adultery. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, the law says you won't commit adultery. But I say to you, it's even deeper than that. It's about something that's going on in your heart, and if you even look upon a woman lustfully, then you have committed adultery with her in her heart. So uh, God is extremely uh, intense about protecting what he has designed to display his glory in covenant. Because you see this now, and now that it's a blood covenant, what is it a picture of? What's marriage a picture of? It's the gospel, it's Christ and his church which is, according to, uh, according to Galatians, which is the very thing that's going to make known to the enemy the wisdom and the glory of God. So he's serious about what he has designed as a vehicle to display his glory. You guys okay? All right. So we're going to get in it uh, a little bit more. It's like, I don't know, it's fun. I love talking about the taboo stuff with you. Your faces are amazing. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to move in uh, to, we're going to talk about Abraham and we're going to talk about this, the, I think, probably in, in the scriptures, besides, uh, besides Jesus on the cross. And, and Jesus on the cross is a great picture of covenant, but you have to kind of know what a blood covenant was to understand how Jesus is making covenant on the cross. If you just read, that's why we have to know the Old Testament. If you just read Jesus on the cross, you, you probably won't register uh, covenant. You probably won't register why his blood is so precious and important. You probably won't register why it flowed down uh, onto, onto the ground, why it was important for him to die on a tree. You won't, you won't register those things unless you understand covenant. But we talked about all that. All of that is part of a blood covenant. And the scars that Jesus bore are evidence of that covenant that he has made with us. But I want to look at what I think is probably this, the next best picture, uh, and certainly what I think is the best picture in the Old Testament of covenant uh, with Abraham. So go to Genesis chapter 12. So in the scriptures, four different times, four times, uh, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as what? As righteousness. Four times this man is talked about and it says, it says that he did something very, 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 very simple. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what we want to do in the next few weeks is, uh, is unpack what is it that he actually believed? 
What does this mean that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? And the very first part of that is to look at what God did with Abraham in terms of covenant. What is it that God gave him to, uh, to actually believe and how was it sealed is what we're going to look at uh, today. And then we're going to, uh, in the next, in two weeks, uh, I'll be gone next week, uh, but in two weeks, you'll be here, but in two weeks we'll talk about uh, Abraham uh, and Isaac. And so uh, we'll do this in, in two parts. So here's just a little context before we get there. When we, when we come to this point with Abraham, it's been 500 years since the flood. So in the flood, what did God do? There was, there was massive idol worship, right? It was, uh, it was just heathenism, right? And in, uh, in the flood, God wipes it all out. There was one righteous man. His name was Noah. So this massive event sealed by a promise of God with the rainbow, right? God, God makes this covenant uh, with, uh, with Noah, makes this promise to him that he will never, ever do this again uh, on the earth. And, and so it's been 500 years since this moment where we're going to pick Abraham up. His name is Abram at this point. Uh, he has been living in this place called Ur, <laughs> right? There you go. <laughs> He's been living in Ur, U-R. Now, Ur is, uh, is located in Babylon. It's a sophisticated uh, place, but it's pagan, okay? Uh, idol worship. The, the, uh, the idolatry here, the focus was a moon goddess. They would, they would hand carve uh, these, uh, these idols to a, to a moon goddess. So it's a sophisticated society, but an idolatrous society. Any, anybody uh, realize that sounds a lot like us? It's a sophisticated society, but it's idolatrous uh, in a huge way. And, and the story is that, um, that in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, he, he starts off like, hey, man, I'm God. Leave your home, right? I mean, this is basically the sequence. There's not like a get to know you phase. It's just, hey, I am, I am God. I am author, finisher, creator. This is who I am, and I want you to leave. He says, get up, and I want you to leave, I want you to leave Ur. I want you to leave your household. I want you to leave everything that you've always known and that your family uh, and, and all your family before that has ever known. And I want you to get out and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to give you, right? This is in Genesis chapter 12. You can track with it later if you want. But then he begins to lay out these promises. He says, I want you to leave. I'm gonna take you to a new Land that I'm going to establish and give to your descendants forever. He says, I'm going to make you a a, a blessing to all nations. He says, and in you, this is the way he says it, in you and in your seed, uh, that's a singular term, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we realize, and fast forward, I'm not going to go in depth on this, we fast forward and look at Matthew, the reason that the gospel of Matthew is so extensive in its uh, proving the genealogy of Jesus is because it proves that Jesus is in fact the one that was prophesied by God to Abraham. He is the one, that seed, that in him all nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is, comes from the lineage, right, of Abraham. So this is kind of what, what is, uh, what's happening. So Abraham has been, or Abram at this point has been called out. He's left. And God is beginning to speak to him about promises. So uh, I think I told you to go to Genesis 12. Flip over and we're going to go to 15. Now it is so key that you remember 
um, that you remember the process of covenant. If you weren't here last week, look it up online. It's, uh, we go through the process of, uh, of covenant and how it actually happened in a blood covenant. But in Genesis chapter 15, here's how it begins in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, now listen to what he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your, ex- excuse me, your exceedingly great reward. All right. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. As soon as he says this, what do you think Abraham does? Does he go, that's kind of cool. You know, I was really hoping somebody would be my shield and my exceedingly great reward, but I appreciate you. What begins to run in Abram's mind? He's not just saying, man, God, I received that. That's a great word. What begins to trigger in his mind is covenant. This isn't just casual language that God is speaking with Abram. This is covenant language because what does he say? Remember the first steps of, of covenant? What was it? Take off your cloak, remember? You would take off your cloak and you would trade robes. And that robe, that cloak, that raiment is your, is your testimony. It represents the person that you are. Scripture is uh, over and over and over proves that the wearing of the clothes, uh, what, what you wear is proof of who you are. And so God says, uh, and then I'm sorry, and then the second step is to give, the, give your belt. And we talked about, this is when I made my Jinko joke and nobody knew what Jinko jeans were. You remember this? Okay. April Rose. <laughs> Somebody else knows. Okay. So then he would give the belt. And what did the belt hold? Your weaponry, right? And what you're saying is, uh, what, <laughs> I said pants. Very good. Uh, what you're giving is your strength. You're giving over your, your weapons and saying to that person you're coming into covenant with, you're saying to them that you, my strength is your strength. Your strength is my strength. Anybody that attacks you, they're not just attacking you anymore. They're attacking me also, right? And so these two steps would happen uh, in the very, very beginning of covenant. And God comes to Abram and he says, I am your strength. Uh, I'm sorry, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. What's he saying in those two things? When he says, I am your exceedingly great reward, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself being given over to Abraham. What does that mean? I am your exceedingly great reward. He's saying to Abraham, all that you will ever need and want will be satisfied in me. I am am the crown jewel of the pursuit of your life. I am that I am. In me, you will find everything that you will ever need. I am your reward. I am what will quench your thirst and your hunger. I am what will ultimately satisfy you. And I am your shield. So in this, Abraham hears covenant language. God is giving Abraham himself, and he's giving him his defense. God doesn't just call him out aimlessly. God calls him out because God wants to achieve a purpose in him and through him. And in order to do it, God says, it's not going to be based on you defending yourself. It's not going to be based on you uh, accomplishing it yourself. But I am your reward, and I am your Shield. So God begins this covenant discussion with Abram. I want to stop here, and I just want to put this question before us. There's a lot of talk in the scriptures about what we hunger and thirst for. 
There's a lot of talk in the scriptures about what we are ultimately satisfied by. Paul, in this extreme, extreme life, in the book of Philippians, he tells us, uh, in, when I had everything and when I had nothing, when I was totally rich and satisfied, uh, I'm sorry, when I was totally rich and wealthy and able to, uh, able to have whatever I wanted, and when I was beaten and, and rebelled against and scourged and, uh, and everything else that could happen, in both of these extremes, he says, I learned to be what? What's the word he used? I learned to be content. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are you who are hungry. For what? For righteousness, because you will be filled. And so from the very beginning with Abraham, God speaks to him about a filling, a satisfaction in us that can only be given by the person of God. And I just, I, I, I want us to stop there and consider what satisfies us. I want us to consider what we, what we set as the pursuit of our lives because we in some way believe it will satisfy us when ultimately what God is saying here is that I have designed man to be satisfied by nothing else but me. That when your mouth is dry for purpose, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that can satisfy that thirst. And when your belly aches and is hungry for something deeper than the mediocrity you're living in, I'm the only one that can satisfy. And it has nothing to do with the circumstances you're in, but it has everything to do with what is in you and fills you, which is the person of Jesus. Can I, just, can I just tell you that nothing will ever satisfy you in your life except for your creator? That ultimately everything will fall short. And I'm not talking to the unbeliever, though you may be in the room. How many Christians hunger and thirst for something that is not Jesus? How many of us are discontent because ultimately we don't find our satisfaction in him. We find it in other things. We find it in the words of man. We find it in riches. We find it in relationship. We find it in lots of other things. But the word here that God is giving to Abram before he even begins is that I'm the only one that will ever satisfy you truly. All right, so I'm going to read a little bit and then we're going to go into really the meat of this covenant. But Abram said, verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is an heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. So remember, God promised him, promises him descendants. <coughs> And in those descendants, all the nations of the earth uh, will be blessed. So what's the problem here? Abram has no descendants. He's, he's creeping up on 100, right? <laughs> Sorry, I won't. We've already done the sex talk. I won't do that again. <laughs> so it's not looking good. It's not looking good for Abram and Sarah. And he's saying, he's saying God, you, you keep promising. You keep saying you're going to do this stuff. Uh, there's, there's nothing here to prove that what you can actually do will, will occur. 
And God says again in verse four that one will come from your own body, which will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now watch this. This is what we said in verse six. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him a righteousness. Did he believe God because he produced an heir right there on the spot? No. He believed God at his word. He believed the promise of God. We're going to go into that a little bit more. He believed in that heir. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So if we're not careful, we, we look at Abram and we go, man, you are a guy with no faith. Like God just brought, anybody ever had that conversation with God? God brings you outside and says, look at the stars of the heavens. Let me just talk to you about how your descendants. Anybody ever had that conversation? No, and we're going, man, Abram, he just like hung out with you for a bit. And you're complaining and you're, and you're, and you're saying, God, but how will it be? Well, we gotta be careful here. That's not what Abram's saying. Abram is speaking back to God the very language that God started with him and it's covenant language. He's saying, and what covenant will we enter into that what you say will be true? Because it's already said, he believed God and he counted to him his righteousness. And then, he be, and then he just asked God, and what covenant will it be that we enter into? And so that's where we are in verse 8. In verse 9, God begins to speak. So he said to him, now listen, this is as well laid out of blood covenant as you can get. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. So what does God tell Abraham to prepare? Come on. Guys, this should excite you after last week. A blood covenant. Abram's question to God is, I believe your promises, but what covenant will we enter into that those things might be sealed? And God says, go get a sacrifice. And what does Abraham know? God is going to seal this with the ultimate seal. This is not a casual covenant that I'm about to enter into with him. This is the, uh, this is the elite. This is the ultimate. This is the pinnacle of covenants. This is the thing that is binding that cannot be broken that God is about to uh, bring me into. And so God tells him, go get the sacrifice. And Abraham does. And he splits them in two. Remember I said the birds would be left uh, in, in, as, as whole. So what does he do? He creates the aisle way. You remember we talked about it last week. Lindsay and I made a blood covenant. And the, the two parties would split the, uh, well, we didn't actually make a blood covenant. <laughs> we got a little violent up here. But the two parties would, uh, would split the sacrifices in two, right? And they would turn their backs to one another, standing back to back, and they would make figure eight and end up right back in the middle, right? They would cover their feet with the blood of the sacrifice, uh, and they would then face each other, and in that moment, they become one. They're saying, may God do this to me, and more so if I were ever to break covenant with you, and they're also covering themselves in the blood, which is representative of their own blood, right? And that is what Abram and God are about to enter into. That's what Abram presents to God. And this is really interesting. So he prepares the covenant and it's sitting there. 
And it says, uh, and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Well, if you, if you do a little, little history back in Leviticus, you, you, can, uh, uh, you can realize that, that God has clean and unclean animals. And all that God had uh, Abram prepare were clean. This was a clean and perfect sacrifice. But vultures, he describes, these are unclean animals. And so what comes down to attempt to disturb the covenant? The vultures. Well, if we jump ahead in Matthew, Jesus' words sound a little bit familiar when Jesus says, look, when a seed of truth is planted, the fowl of the air come and attempt to take that seed of truth so that it would not bear fruit. You remember this passage? He's referring to the attempt of the enemy to rob uh, the things of God. And he does it right here. And Abram, with all of his energy, he tries to get the fowl away. But uh, ultimately, he's, uh, he's just a man. And he can only stand guard for so long. So here we go. Now look at verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell Upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So uh, I think you, understanding the word horror is not like a scary movie here. Uh, it's just a tremendous, deep darkness that falls on Abram. What, what, in simple terms, what does he do? He goes to sleep. In very, very, very simple terms, that's what happens to Abram. It says the sun is going down. And God brings this, this darkness and he puts Abram to sleep. So now think about this. We've got this covenant that's set up. You guys okay? We need like a stand-up break? Are we good? All right. So God, God has Abram prepare this covenant. And the time has come for them to enter into covenant terms with one another. The time has come for this covenant to be official. And one of the main parties in the covenant goes to sleep. That's how I feel sometimes teaching you. <laughs> Just kidding. You're awake. Right? Why in the world, why in the world would God bring this darkness? Why in the world would God allow this man who he has brought out of the uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, who he has made these tremendous promises to, who has set up this, uh, this covenant uh, ceremony and who has defended it? Why in the world would God allow him to sleep at the time when they are supposed to seal themselves together? But it says that he goes into a deep sleep. We're going to answer that question in just a second. I just want to read it through so you get the full picture. Verse 13. Then he said to Abram in this sleep, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and will afflict them 400 years. He's speaking of Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and when it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Riphraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So what is prescribed, what is, sorry, not prescribed, what is described here in this picture? Abram goes to sleep. God prophesies to him about his, uh, about his people's uh, stay in Egypt. It's exactly 400 years when God sends Moses to rescue people from Egypt. He says, this will occur. But then what happens? There's this very interesting picture that takes place. While Abram is asleep and this covenant is supposed to take place, it says something like a smoking oven and a burning lamp go and do the pattern that I talked to you about. They create this figure eight pattern. They walk through the pieces. It's describing the sealing of a blood covenant. The problem is we don't feel like we have either party, God or Abram, right? It's an interesting, interesting picture. God is the one that set all of this up. And Abram's the one that's supposed to join him in the covenant. And then it says an oven and a torch. Right? I want to show you something really, really, really cool. I want you to go to, um, let's see, go to Matthew 17 first. And then we're also going to go to Revelation 1. So, while you're going there, I'll just catch you up. The oven is God. The smoke is God. If you, if, uh, you remember with Moses, what does God present himself as of the people? What's going to lead them? Yeah, fire and smoke, right? So this, this oven, this description of an oven, I just want to tell you, it's probably way cooler sounding in Hebrew. Like we don't know what a, this burning oven looks like. You know, it's like we're thinking of, our Kenmore elite, you know, and we're like, oh, I don't quite get that, right? But this is, this is, this is describing uh, the smoke, the presence of God, which is, uh, which is present throughout the scriptures, present in the tabernacle, uh, present in the temple, present as he leads his, as, as he leads his people. This is God. But this, this lamp is interesting. So go to Matthew 17. Are you there? Somebody read verse 2 as loud as you can because there's a lot of us in here. It's interesting. So Jesus takes his disciples. This is what's called the transfiguration, right? He takes a few of his disciples, uh, and he has, this, he has this moment where he's clothed in the glory of heaven. And what, is it, what does it describe him as? What is it, what's the description? He's bright like the sun. He's, he, he gets this, uh, this glow about him, right? This, this is bright like the sun. His clothes are bright. Go to, uh, go to Revelation 1. We've been studying this. Pat's been going through the book of Revelation. He taught this two weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 1, it's the very end of your Bible, by the way, if you're having a bit of trouble finding it. Uh, It says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed, with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So he's speaking of Jesus, right? He's saying the one who's in the midst of these uh, lampstands, the burning one, right? Listen to this. In verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes, look at his eyes, 
were like flames of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. I want to I tell you that Jesus is not a meek man. Jesus uh, has meekness in him. But the one who we serve, the one who is coming back, the one that will sit on the throne above all thrones, he is a burning God with fire in his eyes. And this little picture of dainty Jesus at the uh, Last Supper is a incorrect rendition of the warrior king that we serve. And we have got to, as the church, we've got to get this picture of him, this picture of him, that he is the one that has served us on the cross, but he's not there anymore. His eyes are like fire, and he's clothed with white. His feet are as bronze that have been uh, refined in the furnace. He is a warrior. And this is the one who's spoken of in Genesis. See, John chapter 1 tells us that he existed before the foundations of the world. Jesus, didn't, Jesus wasn't born into existence through Mary. That's when he became a man. That before the foundations of the world, he existed. And the Bible describes this uh, unbelievable process of creation with the, the, the Trinity acting in, uh, in, in tandem uh, as creation is released through the mouth of God. This is all creation was in him. And by the process of the Holy Spirit and God calling it out, all of, uh, all of creation came from Jesus. And this is the one, Jesus, who walks through this covenant. Now, isn't that interesting? That God calls Abram, says, I want to do this through you. Now go to sleep. I'm going to make covenant with myself. Why does he do that? Why would Jesus be present at this covenant that God is making with Abraham? What in the world is the point? Well, what do we look at in Genesis chapter 2 and 3? How capable is man of holding up their end of the deal? How capable was Abraham as a man right in that moment? How capable is he of making covenant with everlasting God? You ever try to make a covenant with an ant? Same idea. They're probably not going to hold up their end of the deal, much less understand what you're saying, right? <laughs> we laugh. How could everlasting God make covenant with us? We could never stand in the gap for our end of the deal. You understand that? You could never hold up your end of the bargain. We saw that in, in, uh, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. How long could they maintain innocence? It didn't take long. It just took one time for the enemy to come and say, did God really say? And they said, oh, I don't know, and ate the apple, right? Innocence was gone quickly. That's why God never intended for us to stay in innocence. He said, I'm going to give you righteousness, which is not of your own. It's mine, and I'm going to give it to you because my nature is the only thing that will complete the things that I want to do on the earth. The only possibility that you and I have of being in covenant with God is for God to be in covenant on our behalf. We cannot be in relationship with God in a covenant way unless he steps in on our behalf and makes that covenant for us. 
You see this. And so Jesus stepped in and said, I'll make covenant with you. I can, I can hold it. I know you want to do this through Abram. I'll walk with you, God. Because I can hold it. And he can't. So this deep sleep falls on Abram. And you imagine this? The covenant as it takes place, as the, uh, as the father and the son walk through covenant and bind themselves on Abram's behalf to one another. Jesus is saying, I will hold up their end of the deal. It's not a hokey and small thing when we go, Jesus died for all our sins on the cross. Right? We've trivialized that statement. But literally what he's saying right here before you were, you were even a thought in your parents' mind, he's saying, I will stand in for what they are supposed to do. I will take what is theirs on my own. I will make covenant with you that all you want to do in them will have to come through me. It's no accident that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because Jesus is the one that bound himself to the Father in covenant. And to know God, we have to know the Son. You with me? Everybody stand up. In 1 Thessalonians 5.24, it says, Faithful is he who calls you, who will also do it. It's my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Faithful is he who calls you, who will also do it. Here's the truth of the Christian life. You didn't save yourself, and the holiness and the perfection that God has called you to live cannot be done by yourself. It is done simply in this way, by abiding in the power of Jesus. This has been the truth from the beginning of time. And what does that look like? What does that word abide look like? Well, how funny would it be? I don't know if you guys can all see me if I pull this chair up here. What's this designed to do? It's supposed to hold me, right? The design of this chair is to hold me. But what does it look like if I try to do the work of the chair on my own? Something like this. You guys may do it a little prettier than I do. I know I look a bit awkward. But this is what I'm doing by, or I could, you know, I don't, Parker could probably do this better than I don't have the squat position down here. But, you know, when I try to do the work of the chair on my own, it looks foolish. And you know how fast I'm going to get tired? Well, I'm going to get tired a lot faster than you probably would, but quickly. I'm going to be exhausted. But see, this word of abide, and I'm going to have you practice it. I want to have you, I want to have you do it. What does it look like to abide? What is he saying when he says, all that I want to do through you is done in my power and not your own? What has he called us to do? He's called us to abide. It literally means this. Allow the chair to do what he said he was going to do. To abide is to rest in the power of the chair, to take all of my weight off of my feet and allow the chair to do what the chair said it was going to do. Now, just to, just to touch it and, and, and feel it, I want you to abide in your seats. Now, do you see that? But you want to know that we look a lot of times as believers carrying around the gospel, we look like this, running around. Preaching the gospel, Right? Preaching the gospel, but there's no power actually in us because all of it is based on my own work. And I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I'm worn out. 
Because I can't maintain the walk of a believer in my own power. And this principle has been throughout God's uh, time to say, you cannot do what I've called you to do. I am the one that must do it. So Jesus makes covenant with God, binding and sealing this reality that all that God wants to do in us and through us is done through us abiding in the Son. And if you haven't learned that lesson yet, you will. If you haven't learned that lesson that you cannot live, the anybody just ever been exhausted trying to live as a Christian without Christ? I've tried it. It's awful. Because you know what it becomes? A checklist. Anybody ever lived the checklist? What I do, what I didn't do, what I, how I behaved, and then you know, I enforce my checklist on other people, which is you know, judgment, which I don't have the power to do, but, well, I did this, this, and this, and you didn't, right? It's an awful, miserable life because I was never meant to live, be lived that way. You were, you were created in the image of God to house the presence of God and for that presence to flow out of you as rivers of living water. You were not created to do. You were created to be. Right? Somebody told me one time, you're not a human doing. You're a human being. And that's the reality of the Christian life, that God has called us to abide. Jesus made covenant with God in this moment with Abraham. In two weeks, we're going to look at what happened with Isaac. What, what really is it that Abram believed? But you guys just receive the truth that you cannot live the Christian life on your own. Can you just nod with me? Can I save you years of heartache and trouble and tell you don't try? Just go ahead and let the power of God that's in you do the work. First Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is he who calls you. Here's the good news. He's called you. The better news is he will also do it. God, we just uh, we pray that we would abide. I know nothing else to pray, God, but that our tight grip on the control of our life would be loosed and would allow the power of God to surge in us in such a way that our life would not be our own, but that we would abide in you and that people on campus wouldn't see Kendall's best effort of living life but that they would see the power and the presence and the glory of Christ in me. In Jesus' name, amen.